Strengthen your immune system with Goldman Laboratories Liposomal Vitamin C and get 10% off. Quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week we give you the best news, views and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians, the companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, founders and clinicians who are changing the world of healthcare in the UK and beyond. I'm a founder and CEO of a health tech business myself and I'm passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. Before we carry on with the show, I'd like to remind everyone to follow the show, which is at Health Tech Hour and follow the station, which is at UK Health Radio across all of the social channels to stay on top of all of the great content that we've got coming up. On today's show, we're going to touch on a few areas that we visited before on the show. So namely men's intimate health, access to diagnostics in the home and just digital health innovation more broadly. Today's guest, Sam Shah, is what I would call a digital health evangelist, possibly even a digital health polymath. So he's not just the chief medical strategy officer for Newman, one of the leading digital health brands for men, but also the founder of the Faculty for Future Health at Ulster University and a key advisor to the NHS on the areas of digital health innovation. Sam is absolutely at the forefront of driving the positive changes to the healthcare industry that digital technology enables. And it's a pleasure to get him onto the show. So, Sam, how are you? Hello, Steve. I'm great. How are you doing? Good. You know, good. We, um, yeah, we had a week off last week. We did a, we did a repeat of the show. So it's good to get back live. Good to get you on. I know it's going to be an exciting show. So um, I ask everyone to, that comes on this, um, which is basically what's the mood in the camp. But I know that you have a few camps. So like, feel free to however you want to answer the question. But what's, you know, stuff's unlocking now. You know, the end is in sight. What's the general mood on the ground? Do you know, I think it's really interesting when I look at the different groups that I engage with, like clinically in practice, it's still really difficult. It's probably really challenging with all the restrictions, control measures. So well, seeing patients face to face is hard. But if mm. I think about environments such as human, it's super exciting. People are you know, really engaged with online healthcare. And I'm seeing more people interact around their health. And as people are getting out and about, they're sort of getting back in touch with uh, their well-being. They're thinking about their wellness. You know, so those things are good. Uh, and I guess for, for me, you know, seeing people out and about and being able to interact again uh, and seeing people were able to sort of start being semi-normal, I think is a great thing. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's an incredibly exciting time. And the clinicians that we speak to do, still do say they echo that same thing, which is it's still on the ground kind of a challenge. Um, but hopefully these things will will change. And I know that a lot of the digital technology areas that, that you're involved with or haven't been involved with 
are, are aiming to try and improve that situation going forward, which we can touch on in the show. So as regular listeners to the show will know, we do the show in three parts. The first is sort of an origins part of how you came to be doing all of the incredible world changing stuff that you're doing. The middle bit is all of that stuff that you're actually doing. And then the final bit is what's the future for you and for the projects that you're involved in. And then more broadly, anything that we'd like to discuss if we get to it. Um, but I know that we've got a lot to a lot to cover. So let's go back. So you originally, this is true, I think, originally qualified as a dentist. Is that correct? Your original study was as a dentist. Um, and so at that point, what, what did you expect your your journey post qualification to be like? You know, it's really interesting. So, um, in fact, even prior to dental surgery, I worked in retail technology and banking technology prior to that and uh, was involved very much in those areas. But of course, trained clinically in dentistry, qualified as a dental surgeon, worked in those environments and started postgraduate training there for a, for a future that was very much in the space of uh, really dentistry and public health. And uh, at that moment in time, yes, I had a sort of a side interest in health tech and technology but didn't really sort of imagine that it'd become a career pathway, very much thinking about public health, inequalities, reducing uh, inequity in access to services. So um, back then, almost uh, 20 years ago, I definitely don't think digital health was even a real concept at that point. And people were just starting getting used to things like online shopping and online banking and having come from that sector back into health. It was certainly very different. So yeah, started off in in dental surgery, went into a role that was sort of a clinical academic role, um, and then from there to public health. And then after that, decided to sort of follow this interest and started getting involved in technology a little bit then, started getting a bit more involved. And that's when it sort of happened 10 years ago that uh, I started making the shift. The lightning bolt. We'll come on to the lightning bolt as, some, uh, in, in, as, we, as we get on. But when you, when you studied as a dental surgeon, was that a calling for you? Did you feel like that that was, your, that was an emotional calling or was there other motivations there? Very sad and boring. But I think at the age of six, I decided that that's wow. what I wanted to do. Right. And the more that people said to me, don't do it, the more I wanted to do it. And um, I sort of stuck with this path of this is what I want to do. And then as I got through it, realized there are so many other opportunities as a clinician that I can apply myself to uh, having trained across, uh, trained across the system with my other clinical colleagues. Um, you know, it was certainly uh, one of those moments where you realize actually the approach of being able to understand someone's health, diagnose a condition, come up with a plan. Doesn't matter whether you're in healthcare or any other sectors, pretty much the same as an approach. It's just that clinical skill set. So mm. it was it was a sort of calling, perhaps by accident, and having seen other people I know uh, in that environment. But where it ended up was probably very different. Yeah, I can imagine. And so when you were um, when uh, to your point where you you know you started off and you know digital health wasn't really a thing at the time. Can you remember like what? when you sort of started out what what was digital health if it was anything what what was it defined by at that point in time really very much about electronic health records so the the digital filing cabinets and if I think about when I first worked in a GP practice uh, converting their paper records into their digital system back then in the 90s that was what digital health was. It was about electronic health record systems it was about paper filing cabinet really nothing more than that 
digitizing the existing paper records Co- completely it's basically instead of big filing cabinets very very big servers and computers taking up that space and that was it. and then the next sort of foray was digitization of radiography i was okay. in practice and along came new digital systems of radiographs and when i first started in in that environment i had to develop manually develop radiographs you put them through a machine and put them through different different just, processes and different just so we're okay radiograph is like an x-ray you it's mean a, it's or an x-ray diff- that's right yeah. so when yeah. someone goes to see a, a whether it's a doctor in hospital or in a dentist in practice you end up having an x-ray taken and that x-ray someone a bit like a film has yeah. to put it through different chemicals and it comes out the other side a bit like what used to be a negative right. and that was a really manual smelly chemical right. driven process and then digital radiography came along uh, so digital x-rays and that right. sort of changed things so again got involved in putting some of those systems in place and that was mm-hmm. really interesting um, so that was kind of the first moment of getting involved in that sector okay and were you did you at the time did you sort of start at what point did you start to sort of I don't know notice or realize that hold on a second this digitization process there's a lot more to it than you know just digitizing paper files or so on what at what point did you get a kind of a an epiphany that wow this really could revolutionize every aspect of the healthcare system give or take it was probably in a different sector it was when i was really involved in retail and banking that it happened that i was involved in creating online shopping websites uh, for some fairly big retailers and the ability for individuals to access their bank statements and that's when i was like hold on a second i'm creating online channels in a different sector helping yeah. people to access information, make transactions, do things for themselves. This isn't that different to making an appointment in healthcare or looking at your own record. Mm-hmm. Is it in one sector we are democratizing, handing over the controls to the citizen, the consumer, and it was very much the consumer and customer as the language, yeah. but yet in a different sector, we're not doing anything even similar to that, even down to booking an appointment, still being a manual process. And that's when it was sort of, beginning to dawn on me and then what what crossed over with it was the introduction to public health and realizing there's a whole bunch of people in society that don't have access to healthcare, not because it's not available for lots of other reasons other than just the availability and that's almost right there's a dimension here there's in other sectors we're making those sectors more accessible making them more available through the power of the internet the online channel yet in healthcare why is it we're not doing this? And could we use this as a way of making healthcare more accessible for those people that would benefit most? And that was the moment sort of, I would say early 2000s, around 2003, that that really came together. So was there, was I know now um, uh, equality of healthcare or inequality of healthcare and trying to address that is obviously a major part of the NHS's plan or, or plans. Um, but was that when you, when you had those discussions with public health in the early 2000s, was that the beginning of the realization on their behalf that this problem was there or had they already realized for a while and, and this was just sort of, I don't know, they were trying to do something about it at the time. Like where were they on that spectrum? So health inequalities have existed almost as long as time. And if you go back to any public health text or medical text, you'll find the description of health inequalities going back almost 100 years. Okay. People know it's back, you know, far back as the poor laws and before that of the, of the concept of health inequalities and the need to solve them. But our model of solving it was very traditional. It was either create more healthcare resource, so more okay. doctors and clinicians, or try and address some of the other issues in societies, the wider social determinants, so like 
poverty and income and employment and housing sanitation. So recognized okay. completely, you know, uh, recognized concepts. What didn't really exist on the agenda was the use of digital as a route of solving that, you know, the use of technology, whether that's direct to consumer for healthcare or whether it was making services more accessible through online channels, that wasn't really part of the agenda at that point. And, and I would certainly say amongst public health colleagues, there was a fair bit of resistance to the use of technology. It was almost slightly frowned upon when we started discussing it. And what would some of the, well, let's take a step back. How would you define health inequality, just so we're all on the same page? For, for me, it's really simple. It's the differences in health experience uh, and health outcome and access to healthcare for different groups in society. That's the, for me, it's at that simplest level. And what matters is the inequity, the unfairness is what matters. We don't all have to have completely equal access. What matters is that we have some ability to attain the same outcomes, which takes us to the issue of fairness. And it's that dimension that's really important. What are the biggest determinants of whether someone has fair access to healthcare or, or unfair access to healthcare? I mean, ultimately, it's disposable income. Okay. If people have disposable income, that makes the complete difference pretty much for everything in their, in their lives. But the irony is, it's definitely not health that influences, really influences health inequalities. It's everything else. It's education, it's employment, it's housing, it's your community, it's your water, it's your sanitation. It's those things that have a bigger impact on health and health inequalities than, uh, than health itself. Because actually, it's a minority of healthcare that will impact on health inequalities and it's a it's a very small proportion of what we do in health that actually has an impact so if we need to really change the lens on how we address this and and that's what working with online providers is great because it's a really fre- it's a fresh approach it's not coming from a healthcare paternalistic approach it's often coming more from a consumer approach yeah and we often we've often heard um my, my background was not in healthcare it was in commercial sort of vc backed tech and if we felt like there was a target group of people that we wanted to attract to our product or service, we would figure out a way to go get them. I mean, that's just how we would, you would, you would approach the problem like that. You would, what is the problem? Where are these people? Who are these people? What do they watch? What do they read? Where do they go? And you would construct it like that. So I, I, I agree with you that there's definitely something to be taken from that into the, the healthcare space. And, and I think if we take any other, any other sector, we think about segmenting our audience. We segment the audience yeah. and we think about their personas or whatever we want to call them and we segment them. And uh, you know, if you think back in the 90s and the 2000s, the, the, the credit agencies were very good at doing this to yeah. understand risk. And the same thing then moved itself into retail, consumer retail uh, as well. Now in health, we kind of knew about this concept because we've used it in public health to target groups in the population. What we didn't then do is the follow on from that in the same way that a retailer or a bank might do. And, and that for me is really fascinating because digital as a concept, as a way of having a discussion allows people to start thinking about user experiences, user journeys in a similar way to that segmented audience that for those audiences design around them which is yeah. kind of what's happened. And that's why I think digital health has leapfrogged beyond traditional healthcare because it's brought mm-hmm. the lens of user research segmentation and layered it over healthcare. Yeah, and also it's so scalable. But I take your point around the, um, 
the, the, the piece around the segmentation and being able to apply things to each individual group. And, and, do, and, and do you think that it's the difference of whether you view them as a user or view them as a patient or a bit of both? I, I think you have to view them as both. But ultimately, there is this dichotomy in healthcare. You'll find that like, there's a group of people that's very much this is about the patient. There's another group of people which is about this is about the user, the consumer, the customer. Yeah. I think there's both. I think yeah. there's a, there is they, they both coexist. Sometimes it's the same person that coexists. But I'm fundamentally of the view that if we are going to change the power balance, the power dynamics, we have to start off from the perspective of the user. And I don't just mean the user being the patient or the citizen. I also mean the user being the clinician in this equation yeah. as well. Yep. Uh, because they they too are users. Uh, they are they are different users of the system, but they are also users. Well, and also, if you are looking to sell your product or service into the NHS, then there's a very very good chance, if not a guarantee, that clinicians will be needing to interact with it in some way, shape, or form. Ergo, they will be users. They you will have to go past them. They will assess your services to whether they think it's good, bad, or indifferent. You know that will be a key part of the procurement. I would I would guess. And, and you probably found this too, I'm sure, with some of the things you've done, where those users in healthcare are heterogeneous. They're different, right? Like the, the requirements of a pharmacist or a dentist will be different to a GP or another doctor. So when you're approaching with a product, like that product, if you're going to ask them to be the deployment point, if they're going to be the ones distributing it, it almost has to work in their workflow, right? You might have, I certainly expect you might have come across this yourself. I think the more, more so than anywhere else that I've worked, that the, because healthcare, and probably rightly so, because it's been um, developed, well, first of all, because it by, by definition covers all aspects of human health, it's a huge, huge organization, quote, if you want to sort of lump it like that. And, 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 and because of the um, importance of what is being done and the risks and safety to patient necessities of, of, of everything that's happening, there have to be extremely clear, delineated, established pathways for everything to happen. And what that means is that you you have to, you, well, you can do one of two things. One is that you can say, I'm so new, you've never seen me before, you need, and I'm also, what I've got is so good, you're going to make a new pathway just for me. You can try that, you know, <laughs> you can have a go at that. And I'm sure that there are, you know, you might know of some examples, I'm sure there are examples of where that has succeeded. Um, I think the, the better approach would seem to me to be to understand how you can fit into an existing pathway, but help the system achieve the outcome it is aiming to achieve more effectively, more efficiently at a lower cost with a better patient outcome, with better user satisfaction, clinician satisfaction, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to trying to. And, and the truth is, is that I would imagine nine times out of 10, you, you don't have something that's so new. It needs a new pathway, I, I, would, I would guess. But, you know, I don't know what you think. Do you know, I think there's um, two elements to this. Most of the time, there isn't anything that that's, that's drastically new. Right? Most things have got history to them. And so making them more effective and efficient is great and, and is a good thing. Sometimes, though, there's almost a need to be completely revolutionary because there'll be something completely new that's come along in terms of a treatment modality or a way of doing something, which means actually is right to redefine the pathway but often what i find is those things that are almost most ripe for the pathway to be redefined have the greatest resistance from either the healthcare community or the payer community depending on what the model is in a particular country 
And that's partly because of some protectionism in the system. And, and I understand that, you know, I'm part of that protectionism itself. And, uh, and that's hard where there really could be some complete like new pathway development or making something completely more efficient. You know, that, that is, we have the opportunity now that sometimes our entrenched ways of working, our perceptions around what is patient, our perceptions around risk, sometimes color that. Is that a um, is that an issue of um, how those com- you know concepts or services or products how they communicate to the healthcare systems or the payers or is it a or is it a problem with the system itself so it's a, a, a systemic issue or is it more that they haven't taken the right approach in in selling in in you know however they've taken however whatever they've done. I think it's completely multifactorial. Like if we look at a system like uh, the NHS in in England, it's such a range of factors between uh, professional uh, controls, safety, regulatory requirements, payment methods, traditional providers, Mm -hmm. uh, the disruption that could take place. All of those together have a role. The location of services, the way digital penetration works, you you could take every dimension of that and it is collectively the system no one thing is going to solve it there probably isn't a solution and it will change over time i suspect that as to what the problem is and what the solution needs to be but it's almost confronting the fact that there is a problem and static is not an answer and that's hard it's really hard in health systems that are used to operating in a very stable slow to change sort of way yeah and i think that the last 12 months sort of this was was well, obviously, it was a terrible situation for the world, but um, it goes without saying. But what it did usher in in terms of health tech innovation was was, a, you know, once in a generation um, sort of change or adoption of, of digital health technology. I think the question is, yes, that's good that that happened. But if it hadn't have happened, what would the trajectory of those technologies otherwise have been? And it, it would have been significantly flatter, I'm guessing. But I don't know what you well, think. See, I'm I'm, going to have a bit of a controversial view on this now in that I think some things were probably forced through during the last 12 months that otherwise never would have made it because they simply weren't ever good enough. But this necessity of the circumstance meant that they were probably pushed through and forced through. And now are they stuck? Are they stuck in a new way of working? That means we won't undo them for another 10 to 15 years. So can can you give us some examples without wishing to, you know, throw anyone specific under the bus? So if if we look at the number of workarounds that were created during this, just in clinical workflow of ways we're expecting patients to operate, whether that's using an online consulting model and a system, a platform, perhaps, it was never really designed for online consulting. The quality probably isn't even really good enough, but we've almost forced it down into health systems that this is how it's going to happen, whether someone likes it or not triage systems that were never good enough pre-COVID that are now being put in place that people are having to use, forcing every user to have the same poor experience, but actually they should expect more and be given more. And even other basic things, like we have pushed in place things like remote monitoring using pulse oximeters. They had a place during COVID, understandably, but we've almost normalized things that probably on their own wouldn't be good enough, need to be part of a better and different model of care. But now we've almost created a workflow. So things like that. And on the clinician side, you know, there's plenty there too. I think that's really interesting, actually. It's not a view that I've necessarily heard too much, but I do think it's really interesting. It's an interesting way of spinning the problem around, which is that actually 
by trying to do good for want of a better word and and for making for not wanting to make perfect the enemy of the good in an extremely difficult extremely difficult situation that was extended over such a long period of time there have been fudges or hacks introduced that that may not necessarily be so easy to winkle out for quite a while because in a weird way they've sort of become embedded extremely quickly totally you know and i've seen this in my own environment where for example and this is a clinician perspective so not consumer one but it affects the consumer we don't really have an electronic prescribing solution in nhs dentistry it doesn't exist oh you don't use the you don't have digital prescription no it doesn't exist because it's not yet regulated for dentistry in the uk so uh, which is right now, so what? So the workaround, you, and you, you, this may not surprise you, is physically writing out a prescription, scanning it, then emailing it to a pharmacy if they accept it, phoning the pharmacy to see if they've got it. If they have got it, great. If they haven't, find another pharmacy and see if they'll accept it. Then put it in the post so they get it. Then you have to hope that the patient gets that pharmacy before it's closing. And if not, then do the whole process again with another pharmacy. Now, imagine for the consumer, it's not a great experience because they haven't got the certainty or the choice that they can take their electronic token anywhere. And and, and, and yeah, and also to the extent that consumers are now, um, you know, used to digital prescription from their GP, suddenly when they interact with another aspect of the healthcare system, which to them is this, the same system, which isn't, it isn't, we know it isn't, but a lot of people would believe that it is. And suddenly they're being asked to go around the houses with a piece of paper. I can imagine that's hard to understand. C- completely. And it's that whole piece about understanding the user and their entire experience. We've almost segmented the health system in little convenient verticals that are convenient to us as policymakers or whoever we might happen to be. But we haven't thought about it from the point of view of the consumer, of the user. What's their experience of this? What are they seeing from this? And and why is it they can go to one service provider and not have to repeat their information and they go to another service provider, have to recount their entire story? Why has that information flowed sometimes in the same building? And it's that sort of thing where we've done lots of great things in the last 12 to 14 months, loads that we'll learn from, but do we have to take a moment to reflect and work out what are the things that are really good that we should keep? What are the things that perhaps aren't so good that we need to maybe do differently? I would, I would agree with that. This is one of the reasons why I love doing this show. So pretty much in every single show that I do, there's always a moment where someone tells me something that I thought was already happening and I realized it wasn't already happening. So that moment where you said that GP, that dentistry isn't on the digital prescription service, that's one of those moments where I thought, Oh, I, I didn't realize that, that wasn't happening. Um, so I know that you've 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 had this incredible career of move of, of working in private um, businesses within health tech with, and, and elsewhere, as well as working within the NHS and other healthcare systems. And was that deliberate that you've merged the two? And, and what was your sort of what, what what's your um, I guess, what have you learned from working in both areas or across all of these different areas? What are the what things have you consistently kept with you from from all of those? I think the most important thing that has come through from whether it's working outside of health or in health is focusing on needs in healthcare. It happens to be three things, the clinical need, the emotional need and the practical need Uh, in other sectors. It may not be the clinical need. It may be a different need, but starting off with need is the most important thing. Work out what the need is, what the problem is that needs solving. And that almost then helps carry the solution and, and also get the buy in from people. The other thing is I found, whether it's public sector or private sector, 
things are difficult. They're complex. Getting people to change and doing something in a different way is hard wherever it is. Yeah, I would agree um, with that. You know, and, uh, and, and I've certainly seen the other thing is, is think about like who the audience is. Like, that is so important because you know, whether it's the audience for this show, whether it's the audience out there for a particular product or service, it's so important to think about who they are and not think of them as one thing, but try and break them down into the different groups that might exist. So you can tailor a service to them, but certainly something I've taken from working in both the public sector uh, and the independent sector and uh, an industry is that we probably don't do enough around focusing around whoever the consumer might be, whether it's a clinician consuming an EHR or technical system, whether it happens to be a citizen and their utilization. And, and uh, if we're really true about solving those inequalities, solving those problems, we just have to go back to basics, which is, right, well, let's go right back to the behaviors we want to change in society and how we help people for themselves think about the changes they choose to make, but give them every opportunity to do that. And that's something that stayed with me, which is why you know, Newman is super interesting for me because yeah. they're, We've taken that real blend of medical technology and pharma on the one side, blending it with traditional healthcare models, and then really taking the consumer lens to kind of bring that to the fore. And it sort of brings together all of those things about commercialization, healthcare, regulation, and ultimately the most important person, the citizen at the center of it. Yeah, I think that's a great way to segue into Newman. So how would you describe what Newman does or, or what's its mission so Newman is a digital men's health provider, and uh, its mission is really to make uh, healthcare more accessible for men when dealing with difficult subjects. And what we sometimes describe as taboo subjects, other people might say there's stigma around them. And that could be everything from hair loss on the one side to erectile dysfunction on the other side. And sometimes what we're finding increasingly is these things are you know, totally sort of uh, multifaceted, where individuals will be suffering from a range of different conditions, but just are finding it difficult to talk about them. And that could be due to image. It could be due to societal norms about what the expectation is. It could simply be because of the cultural biases we might have around talking about these topics. And what a lot of people don't know is what the underlying reasons are for what they're going through. And so one of the things we're really committed to is sharing as much information as we can, just make information accessible to people so they can understand more about what they're going through, are other people also going through this, and what are some of the ways we can tackle what they might be experiencing, whether it's hair loss, whether it's erectile dysfunction, whether it's a component of mental health, and then find ways of engaging with the individual through a channel that matters for them. So Newman is all of those things. It's accessible healthcare, it's consumer focused, and it's uh, digital health. Okay. And when was it, did it start by focusing on one particular area and expanded or was it always sort of, let's deal with all sensitive problems that men have generally, or not all of them, but the sort of the key ones? It started off very much around erectile dysfunction. That was very much the, the starting point. There were people out there with high demand for treating that condition area. And most services that existed very much focused on medication. Right. And, and, that, and that's important because medication was produced to treat the problem, understandably and rightly so. But we found, though, uh, and especially as research was done, that individuals coming along, yes, those are the symptoms they're experiencing then, but there's a whole load of other things going on. And it's not just one thing that's going on. It ranges from 
20 year olds that may have performance anxiety through to those people much later in their in in their lives which might be suffering from high cholesterol issues with blood pressure or it could even be other conditions like other mental health conditions related to uh, what they're experiencing so what we found is there's a whole bunch of people that need more help than than just treatment in addition to treatment they need other forms of help and that was sort of what started off. And as we went through that, we realized there are other conditions that people are struggling with where state services might not be able to, to, to cope with these other problems, things that are not necessarily uh, directly affecting someone's physical ability or physical impairment, but it's still affecting their self-esteem, the way they yeah. view themselves. And hair loss is a, is a good example of one area like that. But there are others too. Yeah. Um, so I, I think we on one of the earlier shows that, that we ever did, we had... Um, the founder of something called Regimen, a guy called Max Kirstings. And he said exactly the same thing as you almost word for word. So Regimen is a sort of a, a, a digital app based um, non-medication service for erectile dysfunction. And he said exactly the same thing. Um, and again, that was one of the moments where, you know, I didn't know a huge amount about some of the underlying causes for it. But he said, for example, um, uh, erectile dysfunction is often one of the key symptoms in early diagnosis of cardiovascular disease for example. So yes, you have erectile dysfunction because you have early, well, you, you may have cardiovascular issues, like you said, high cholesterol, high lipid levels, high blood pressure. So yeah. And, and so I, I, for me, I think that that, that really opened my eyes as to actually beyond the medication, which I think is what people probably, if you ask them what, unprompted, what, what do you do? Oh, you know, if you've got an erectile problem, okay, you get some, you get some pills. Actually, that's really treating one very specific aspect of it, not the underlying causes. And, and it is important to also treat that aspect because that is part of someone's life, their emotions. Their uh, of course, of course. You know, their connection to other human beings. Like, you know, that is important. Yeah. Uh, and some people, you know, might sort of make light of it sometimes. And, and that and it is an important area to, you know, to fix and solve. But alongside that, it's about really understanding that person and what else they're going through. Uh, and that could be everything from the sort of high lipid levels. It could be something relating to their anxiety, a depressive state. It could be relating to other medication they're taking. It's just nobody's ever been able to spend the time to go through that with them. Um, and hopefully through a slightly different model of engagement, you know, people are able to be uh, to feel that they are personally being looked after and that when they want advice, nobody's going to say no or say there's only a few minutes, but actually give them the interaction they need to get some of the answers they need. What is Newman's approach to the engagement or what 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 um, approach has Newman taken in this area? So I think it's absolutely critical that, that people be able to get that discussion and that treatment and that engagement um, for these issues, because otherwise they're going to foster um, sort of fester and, and will get bigger and have wider implications on, on that person's health. Totally. And um, you know, something you're probably quite familiar with, in fact, is the use of diagnostics in the pathway. And we certainly found as part of the engagement, it's not only understanding something about the individual or their initial consultation, it's also understanding what else they need support with. So as part of our model, uh, that involves supporting individuals to choose the right self-administered diagnostic to get the results that we can then discuss and talk to them about. And, and normally that engagement happens online. So our model is very much an online engagement model. And at various points, when someone's with us, depending on their, their characteristics, we engage with them through that online model. And then that helps them get to the point where are they, do they, at this point, do they need treatment? Let's solve those symptoms first. 
then work out the point at which they're ready to engage in a different discussion. And then we end up with a different number of groups. You end up with some groups that will require ongoing engagement, mainly around diagnostics, to keep them well and stable and to help them with their well-being. The other groups, though, that need much more engagement, where they've got active conditions that they need to liaise with other clinicians, whether it's their own GP, whether they need some advice on what to ask their own GP about, and there's a different group. So the engagement is very much an online model, but it generally takes place different extents depending on who the individuals are. And we certainly believe in helping people to take some of those steps themselves. That might be down to even doing that home diagnostic themselves, but at least they feel part of it. It's not something being done to them, but they are part of all of that and feel some ownership around the health. Well, also, I, I would imagine in particular, well, prior to the 12, last 12 months, this was true, but it's obviously got a lot more true in the last 12 months, is that for some of these conditions, they may either not want to try and go and see a clinician directly, or they might not be able to go and see someone, but these issues will be there constantly in, in, in that person's head. Um, and so being able to reach out to Newman directly online and get that fixed immediately, or you know, be able to take action immediately and be on a pathway immediately, however long that pathway may take, I would imagine makes people feel a lot more positive about their situation because they're taking some agency over it. Totally. And, and, you know, you probably you know, you've seen this in other areas, but given the waiting list generally in public services and um, publicly funded health services, it's quite difficult for people to be seen for things that may otherwise be seen as trivial. You know, it's not necessarily the most sort of scary area, but it might be an indicator for something else. And so people feel resistant and or reluctant even. I describe it as access hesitancy. We've had vaccine hesitancy. We've now got access hesitancy where people are hesitant about accessing and bothering healthcare professionals. They almost feel like they shouldn't do. And actually, that isn't what anyone really wants. But of course, the system only has so much capacity. So this is a great way of people being able to access healthcare advice from healthcare professionals that are trained in this area uh, in order to start getting some of that information and, um, and I'm certainly seeing the other problem you find is that people are sometimes reluctant to speak to people that may be uncertain about understanding their problem. Uh, and, and I certainly found this with clinicians who are finding it hard, you know, female clinicians that might find it harder in some cases to speak to men and men that might be uncertain about what, what they're going to say if they end up with a female clinician. And, and that's not to say everyone experiences that. That's definitely not true. But there are people that, uh, for whatever reason, would prefer to have more control over who they're engaging with. I think that that's where digital health really helps, um, really, really helps. Because, and it's not, again, it's not one size fits all and not trying to generalise at all. But if for certain, for certain sensitive issues, and we've had a few people on the show, like I said, with, with these issues of men's intimate health, women's intimate health, um, you know, polycystic ovary syndrome, where and a number of other things hard to diagnose, um, hard, things that are hard to diagnose, difficult to diagnose. People have to normally see seven to eight doctors before a diagnosis. Either it's intimate or it's it's old, otherwise something sensitive that people don't like to talk about. I feel like digital health is a really a really great solution because it, it allows people to access care and information and treatment and diagnoses and pathways w- without having to go through what they might perceive to be a difficult stigmatizing experience a negative experience of having to explain themselves to a clinician that they don't know or don't feel comfortable with or whatever it is about that person but they know that they want to get treatment and so digital services is a, is a great way to do that i agree and and, and i think 
you know, it won't be for everyone. It, going back to the inequalities discussion we had earlier, the digital divide still exists. There are still people in society where digital is not the thing for them. And the great thing is, is there are still physical services for people that choose not to, or it's not suitable for them. But there are a whole group of people where it is the right channel and um, it's recognizing both. Yeah, I agree. And, and being able to, I think it's partly one of the big challenges now is about guiding the right people to the right channel. So you know, one of the discussions we've, we've, we've had on the show before was around, ironically, digital prescription, digital pharmacies versus community pharmacies, in-person pharmacies. You know, what role does a community pharmacy play if things can be prescribed by a digital pharmacy? And it's like, well, there are certain things that have to take place in person, you know, health screenings, easy blood tests, certain in-person things that have to be done by the community pharmacy and should be done by the community pharmacy. Whereas this, the prescription model is, is more of an operational delivery fulfillment challenge, you know, that, that is geared around a different skill set. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. And, and, you know, that's where I really do think that if we take something like community pharmacy, I can certainly see the role of community pharmacy has to evolve as time goes on. We end up with a different approach uh, and use of clinical ph- community pharmacy because those are highly trained healthcare professionals. They're really well really, trained, extremely yeah. well trained. <laughs> And they're, and they're great at engaging with people. They're used yeah. to dealing with consumers. They're at that front end, as it were. They have that. And they have that. They have. They often, oftentimes, will know people. They'll have that connection. You know, they don't necessarily have the limit on how long they can talk to people. You know, so they can engage with people more. And, and often they're part of communities. Yeah. Right. They're they're part of communities, and that's why those settings, those relationships, are useful in a different way. And I certainly see it a world where, whether it's diagnostics whether it happens to be other forms of health screening whether it happens to be testing all the things that quite often pharmacists are able to do an extension of that will be a positive thing in a health system that's constrained on resource and personnel where we've got some highly skilled people that can really help with that model and it may not be for everyone to do something in their own home, but they might be more comfortable going to their local pharmacy. And I described it the other day to someone. Like, imagine a future where digital therapeutics are a real thing, where people might have more apps helping them control their health, but they're not sure which one to use. In the same way, we might go to a big certain uh, uh, computer retailer that uses fruit as its, uh, as its <laughs> advertising, right? We, other we might... computer available, other computers are available. <laughs> okay, yeah, exactly. <laughs> And, and, but people go to like a pharmacy and, and pick the right app maybe and be directed on how to use it and get the right connected device. And I see that being a really powerful role of those environments. I, 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 I agree. So um, let's, well, actually one more question about, about Newman. So one of the, um, one of the issues that I know people have with the idea of digital services that do prescriptions or do that, that where people interact digitally in order to, end up with some kind of treatment or diagnosis is around how that process is, um, is, is can be ensured to be safe for that person. And I'm, I know that you have aspects in place for Newman, but it'd be great if you could just kind of walk us through what they are. Well, Newman is uh, really interesting because most of our team have worked in, let's say the NHS, for example, my mess- mm-hmm. you know, me myself have come from that environment. And we're really uh, you know, lucky that we are a CPC regulated provider. So we are registered with the Care Quality Commission in England as a healthcare provider. We mm-hmm. had our inspection recently, which was, which was great. It was a good. test of me, but we, we got a good, which was, which was lovely. Good. Uh, and uh, you know, and, and as a regulated healthcare provider, 
we have the same clinical governance processes that any other healthcare provider would have. And that's ensuring that we're providing safe care, effective care, we're a caring organization, uh, and that we do all the things to safeguard our patients. And of course, that we have a great clinical leadership team, including uh, GPs in our team and other doctors, as well as having our group of uh, clinicians, including pharmacists. And so with that in mind, we have such stringent processes in place that it means that we can uh, be fairly certain that we're providing the safest care that we can. And uh, that involves doing all the same things that any other provider would do, looking at the most recent guidance, most recent policies, implementing it. But the great thing is, in addition to doing all the things that another healthcare provider would do, the loveliest thing is, is that we are constantly taking patient feedback. We're constantly looking at the experience of users. So we're blending the two things, providing high, highly regulated safe care with constantly looking at patient feedback to work out how do we iterate the service and improve the experience. Great. Um, I think it's really important that you mentioned the bit about being registered qualified, certified um, healthcare provider. So I think that, that that sets you apart from just generally, you know, another digital sort of website that might happen to be doing kind of at home blood testing and things like that. So what um, is that what you just said there as, as, as one of the reasons as to why you believe it's really important for digital health companies to have clinically trained staff in them and working for them? Completely. I think it's really important that for anyone that's a digital health provider uh, to have clinicians that understand digital health, but also understand remote care and are experienced in deploying those models. I think that's important to have people that take responsibility, that they're the ones that can be leading it and take accountability for the care and the safety of those patients and effective provision of treatment. That's really important. The other thing that I think is important is what I sometimes describe as the Wild West out there. There are so many providers around the world developing, providing digital health, health solutions. Not enough of them are necessarily regulated. I think that's another dimension of it, making sure the provider, the entity delivering it, is regulated and fulfills all the same standards that we would expect of a physical provider. And so I think that's another dimension that's important, not just having registered clinicians, but also having a regulated provider. Because that standard, at least the public knows that this is something that meets the same expected standards of any other regulated healthcare provider. And, and though, both of those things together are important to me, but also to uh, you know, the public out there. Okay, that makes sense. And I think that if um, presumably you're unable to become a registered certified um, healthcare provider, without having clinicians on staff, I would assume, right? It's sort of, they're connected, aren't they, I think? Well, you would assume, but... Yeah, um, that was an, that's an assumption, but I, I did, that's, that, maybe that's wrong. You know, it's interesting. I, I, a few years ago, had to go through this when I was in the NHS and had to deal with a provider that was regulated, but not necessarily clinically led, and regulated in a different jurisdiction, but operating in England. And there are so many quirks to the rules and the laws between not just the UK, but within the four countries of the UK, there are differences as well. And of right. course, now there are differences with Europe as well. So you have to be quite careful and always look into it in, in, in quite a bit of depth as to what are they regulated for and who is taking responsibility here. And in some organizations, it's not a clinician. So whilst they might have clinicians working there, carrying out activity that itself is regulated, the person in charge may not be clinical. And that's not a problem necessarily, as long as they've got systems and processes in place. But it is important to me that uh, 
you know, that uh, um, as a as a provider, that the people that are leading it have some relationship with what they're delivering. That makes sense. I think that just seems like that should be pretty standard. Um, so let's move from Newman now onto the Faculty for Future Health, which sounds incredible. So what is that and how did that come about? So the Faculty of Future Health sort of started pre the pandemic period. So it has slowed down a little bit during the pandemic period, but that's where it came about. And uh, an arm of Ulster University called the College of Medicine and Dentistry that is very much into providing education and training across the world, uh, but from the UK, from uh, a couple of locations in the UK, uh, sort of came together and uh, the dean there spoke to me and said, well, look, you know, this digital health piece, it seems like everyone wants to learn about how to consult online. And I was like, well, you know, that's great, but what do you mean by that? And then we started having a discussion. What we came up came out of that was that there are so many people interested in learning online consulting skills. Let's create a program. But as we went through it, we realized actually they don't want just want online consulting skills. They also want to know about the regulation of online providers, how to lead those organizations, how to capture the right audience. And from that came the Faculty of Future Health. So uh, the College of Medicine Dentistry, which is uh, affiliated with Ulster University, uh, is hosting the Faculty of Future Health. We are developing our first programs that will come out. We've been doing some early sort of engagement and some workshops. And uh, very soon, that's something that will become more mainstream. And the plan is to offer that not just in the UK, but to offer it to clinicians and to people delivering healthcare services in lots of parts of the world. And we hope that will stimulate the discussion. And right. Ulster is fantastic. It's also got a computer science department very involved in user research around healthcare applications. So alongside my role in the faculty, I've been working with the computer science department, promoting their PhDs in digital health and user experience. Okay, I bet there's, there's some exciting stuff that they're working on. There really is. They're, they're exploring how user experience is assessed when a digital health product comes, comes to uh, the, the market. And does anyone actually assess it from the consumer's perspective? There's some really interesting early insights that are emerging from there around, you know, which, which healthcare systems do and don't. And it very much depends on how those healthcare systems are driven. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I think that that would be great. So the faculty itself is that, or the program itself is geared around clinicians who want to learn more about how to learn more about digital health to embed that in their own practices. Is that the is that the well, the, the philosophy? That's where it started off, and then we decided okay. and realised that it's not just clinicians. There are no. managers. There are people interested in digital health. There are people who want to innovate in digital health, and there's a whole group of people. So early interest has come from across the system. So uh, people involved in, uh, there might be everything from managing services through to clinicians working services, as well as others, engineers that want to come along and understand digital health. So what's been great is it's brought together a community of people similar to other programs that exist as well in the UK and elsewhere. But the nice thing is there are people recognizing that we really need multidisciplinary teams, people that come together from lots of sectors. Yeah. And presumably, although I don't know, maybe it isn't, is the intention to that you could join virtually and participate virtually if you want to? Or is it residential in Ulster? Uh, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I haven't even been to Ulster main campus yet. So okay. it very much is going to have to be. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think what we've learned from this process in the last year is that people can participate remotely. And what I hope we'll end up with a blended system where there'll be some remote, and then as and when people like to come together, there's the option of doing that. And that would be a really nice mix. And if, if anyone wants to apply, 
that's listening, will when will the program come out and when will they be able to do that? So the program has luckily been approved through the university process and hopefully in the coming months, probably looking at early, uh, the later part of this year, we'll start to promote it. And then uh, 2022 will probably be when the first intake actually starts. Uh, and so, yeah, we're really looking forward to getting that going. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that sounds incredible. And what else, I mean, was, did you start it because you felt like that was something that didn't really exist and that you would have benefited from it, you know, if you were in a similar position earlier on, or what was the main motivation? I was really lucky that the NHS had a program called the NHS Digital Academy that I went through that had components of digital health leadership uh, training, which is fantastic, but that's not open to everyone. And it's not available to everyone. It's a limited number of places because the NHS can only have a certain number of places each year. And what we realize is across the world, lots of people want these things, but they want more. They want everything from programming skills on the one side. They want to learn about digital marketing and strategy. They want to learn about um, uh, how to create digital consumer services. And so a lot of these programs are great and they're very good at being focused around certain parts of the health system. What we need is something that's more modular that allows it to be open to a greater group of people that could yeah. someone could pick, but they want to have very much of a consumer focus. Somebody else might have a very technical focus. So that was where this hopefully will play to that part of the market. I think it sounds fantastic. I wish you all the best with it. So going back slightly to Newman, what's next, do you think, in the next 12 to 18 months for Newman? So Newman's got some really exciting plans of where it's going to expand to. Uh, both in terms of looking at its reach in terms of the population, as well as where it might sort of go to globally. So that's going to be a really interesting time for Newman. We sort of start to explore that, where there are other conditions that are emerging, and uh, as well as those conditions emerging, which parts of the world are they more likely to exist in that we could move into and help support more people in accessing healthcare? So certainly over the next 12 months in Newman, uh, I'm expecting us to grow both in terms of the conditions we offer as well as the types of people that we treat. And, uh, you know, some of those early things we're beginning to get from our research is, of course, we all know around the issues around mental health. But I suppose yeah. more specifically in that about the patients we can quite rightly treat through an online model, and which tools have evolved to allow us to do that, that we can integrate yeah. into our platform. Other things, though, how do we bring in the fact that we've got so many men out there that are conscious of body image but combining that with what could be exercise and training how do we bring that into a plan that could combine diet diet nutrition exercise but also weight loss uh, and, and in that in some sort of combination and then other things like skin for example you know there's been such a focus for many years around skin health uh, for certain you know, people women more so um, but there are men now increasingly conscious and certainly that's another area that we need to focus on more. So those are the sorts of things that I see emerging over the next 12 months. Early days yet, but really excited about what we're going to do. And what do you think that those will be a blend of, you know, more traditional, well, diagnostic based and treatment based issues, as well as more almost digital therapeutic content based advice programs you know, lifestyle change, behavior change, those type of things. Com- completely. There's going to be a whole blend of a model from a preventative model uh, and promoting well-being at the one end, all the way through to that more uh, treatment therapeutic model at the other end. And even in some cases, like we do right now with our smoking cessation service, using digital therapeutics where we can safely do so. So yeah, very much all three components from that pre-healthcare stage, to managing people in a healthcare pathway as well as post-treatment. 
Right. I mean, I know that I described you at the start of the show as a kind of a digital health polymath, but you, you do have quite, you know, different areas and you've got such a wealth of experience. How do you do you have a particular strategy for compartmentalizing all of this or like how do you kind of what, what's your sort of the lessons or the, the behaviors that you try and maintain um, in your life, in your in your business life? It's really, really difficult. And I certainly find one of the benefits I get from mixing things together is the crossover of ideas. But at the same time, the things that I try and do these days to um, compartmentalize a bit of time boxing. And I've read a lot about that. And time boxing apparently helps. I'm awful at it. I'm absolutely awful at time boxing. But that apparently does help. The other thing I still like to do that um, some people find strange, given the sort of work I do, is write things down. Uh, I do like every now and again, completely disconnect have some quiet time. I miss train journeys and plane journeys. I miss having that quiet time. Oh, you found a kindred soul there. I love that. You can't, you get on a plane, long haul plane journey, the phone goes off, you can just get the pad out, you can organize your thoughts. Oh, I'm with you. Yeah, that is really important to me. And I still like doing that. So to replace the plane and the train journey, I sometimes will just switch off all the channels, especially like messaging channels, switch them all off and then sit down with a piece of paper and just write, scribble all the ideas, draw it out, and that helps. Yeah. Right, good. Well, I can I can relate to that. So um, I think that we're coming to the end of the show, Sam, but it's been absolutely fantastic getting you on and hearing about Newman and hearing about the Faculty for Future Health. So, um, you know, it would be great to have you back on and see how those things develop over time. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our discussion and very much looking forward to meeting again. Good. Perfect. Well, look, Sam Shah, um, Chief Medical Strategy Officer for Newman and Head of the Faculty for Future Health. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been great. And thank you to everyone for listening.